Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, and we will begin reading together at verse 21. I believe that the character of our Good Friday service should be a quiet meditation upon the sufferings of our Savior. This past Lord's Day, we were together in Matthew's account of Gethsemane. Now, Mark's rapidly moving account of the crucifixion and the burial of our Lord. Mark chapter 15, beginning with verse 21, this is the word of God. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and 
Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. People of God in Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus said, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The event that Jesus had contemplated with such horror in Gethsemane, yet with resolve, is now here. Think of Gethsemane as a threshold. Now the Lord Jesus steps completely into hell. And we see in verses 21 to 31, the king humiliated. Moving to the cross, it was normal for the condemned to carry the cross beam to the place of execution. Jesus must have carried it for a distance before becoming physically unable to carry it. Think of what he had endured in the previous 15 hours. There was the upper room. Judas' betrayal, Gethsemane, the desertion by his disciples, the torture and trial by the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, Peter's denial, Pilate, scourging, mocking by the soldiers in the praetorium. And so Simon is pressed into service. The two names, Alexander and Rufus, are known to the readers, obviously. Is this the same Rufus, by the way? Referenced by Paul in Romans 16 at the end of his great epistle, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. It seems our Lord was working out his saving purpose for this family as he continues to work out his saving purpose through his cross. The place where they took him was called Golgotha, the place of a skull, perhaps because of its shape or perhaps because it was unclean. But it was an ordinary place, Satan planning that all would forget him and his cross. But we can never forget Golgotha. Golgotha is situated between Mount Zion, representing the law, and the valley of Gehenna, which represents hell, if you catch my meaning. We can never forget Golgotha. Jewish custom, based on Proverbs 31.6, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Jewish custom was to give wine drugged with myrrh to those about to be executed in order to dull their senses. We read in verse 23, And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Why did he not take it? Because the cup of the wrath of Almighty God must be drained. He can drink down only the law of God so that he may serve up to us the wine of grace and mercy. And our Lord was crucified. Crucified. Verse 24, and they crucified him. Just four words in English, three in Greek. Utter humiliation. The way slaves were put to death. Our word excruciating still captures the idea of torment on a cross. Mark didn't need to describe it. 
It was a bloody reality. He is under the curse. And God saves you through the hammer and the spikes and the shed blood as Jesus bore the wrath of God in his holy soul and body. To add to the humiliation, we read in verse 24, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Words reminiscent of Psalm 22, verse 18. And then in verse 27, And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Do you remember in chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, James and John's request? Their request that in the kingdom one might sit at his right and that one might sit at his left? What do you think they would think of that request now? Don't you think Mark intends for us to remember that request in Mark's Gospel chapter 10? Don't you think also we are intended to remember their their response? We are able. We are able. What a boast. Jesus goes to the cross alone. We see the king mocked. The inscription that is placed over the head of the Lord Jesus, the king of the Jews, is used by Pontius Pilate to mock the Jews. I wonder if you have ever given consideration to the fact that apart from Old Testament references quoted in the New Testament, the first words of the New Testament written were written by Pontius Pilate. They had no idea they were heralding the truth of God. God speaking through the Romans, mocking him as king, but he is king. Robbers on either side of him. Bystanders shake their heads in contempt. Verse 29, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Again, Psalm 22, all who see me mock me. They hurl their insult, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him since he delights in him. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, look at their religion. It's all external piety. Their jewelry is paste. And Mark wants you to catch the double entendre used in the word saved. Save himself in order that he might save others. That's the point. He could not save himself and be faithful to his mission. Only if he does not save himself does he save you and me. And from the Roman perspective, there is nothing important about what is happening in this scene. It was one crucifixion among many. It was a common way of preserving the public order. Tacitus, reviewing the troubles in Judea, comments under Tiberius, nothing happened. Nothing happened. The world always misses the really important, an historical event through which God saves us now. But the Romans say nothing is happening. He bore divine judgment against sin, and yet under Tiberius, nothing happened. In verses 33 to 41, we see the priest sacrificed. 
The text underscores the darkness from noon till three o'clock in the afternoon. To what does this point? Many an Old Testament passage tells us, for example, Amos chapter 8, verse 9, in that day declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. It is a reference to the day of the Lord. It is a reference to the day of judgment. Another judgment passage. Think of Exodus, the last plague, with a darkness that could be felt. And the Lord kills the firstborn. And now in judgment, Christ leads us out of darkness by being engulfed in the darkness of the judgment of God, sacrificing himself for our sins. And now when the devouring angel comes to destroy us, if the blood of Christ is written over the doorposts of our hearts, the angel of death will pass right over, and there is now peace with God. Between 12 and 3, there is a blank. We cannot imagine what happened. That the Holy Son of God, infinitely holy... God who assumed human nature, who went to a cross, holy in his body, holy in his soul, holy in his heart, we cannot imagine. Because there God says to him, you be Adam. You be the adulterer. You be the covetous man. You be the murderer. You be the thief. And who can tell what he endured when he bore the penalty for our sins? Mark relates only one saying on the cross. The experience of Gethsemane comes to its completion in the cry of dereliction from Psalm 22, 1. He is alone. And he quotes his own words given by divine inspiration. In the Bible that he inspired, Psalm 22, he quotes his own words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And how do we understand the meaning of those words? Well, in one sense, we can't. But we understand the meaning of those words when we understand that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we understand that he bore the curse, as we are taught in Galatians 3, that you and I deserve to bear for eternity. We understand it when we remember Jesus' words in this very gospel, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He is ransoming our souls by the paying of the penalty on the cross. And somehow, may I repeat it once again, somehow his infinite nature gave to his finite sufferings infinite value so that no matter what your sins have been, the atonement of Jesus on the cross is altogether sufficient for any sinner who comes to him in faith, no matter who he or she may be. Schilder, the Dutch theologian, says, we can say now that he was in hell as the perfect stranger. He did not belong here. He could not acclimate himself to that place. 
We see in this text the priests mocked him as prophet, the Jews thinking that he was calling for Elijah when he said, Eloi or Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. They thought he was crying for Elijah. They brought sour wine, which the soldiers had for themselves and gave him to drink, but with no sedative. Psalm 69, 21, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Now leave him alone. He's revived a bit, they thought. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And so they mocked him. But in the midst of that mocking, he died a victorious death. We are told in verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, that part of the temple into which the high priest entered with blood once a year to make atonement. The curtain was now torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus is our high priest who has entered behind the veil for us. He has made atonement for us once for all. The death of Jesus has opened the entrance into the presence of God. So that the words of Hebrews 10 are words dear to our hearts. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have free and open access to God through our high priest, Jesus Christ. Do you accept the truth of God's incredible rescue despite who we are and what we have done to God? And in verse 39... And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Now I won't enter into the debates. Perhaps we cannot know for sure what the Roman had in mind by Son of God. Whether intentionally or not, the truth was being spoken and we are taken back, if you recall, to the very opening words of Mark's gospel. Do you remember them? the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A Gentile was the first after Jesus' death to offer a confession concerning him. People, truly, this is the Son of God. In verse 40, we are told the women were there, women doing what the disciples should have been doing. Watching, waiting, undoubtedly praying, loving. Before going on, think on the glories of the cross. That God created us upright, that we sinned in Adam and that there is a breach. Such a breach that we hate God. Every one of us by nature is born with hatred of the living and true God. Is that too strong do you think? Do you realize that God is infinitely holy? Is there not a secret wish in your heart that he were less holy so that he would let your sin slide by? But to wish that God were less holy is to wish that God did not exist because he would not be God unless he is who he is. 
Have you come to see sin in this way? If you have, then it will be joyful news to learn that God wants to be reconciled to sinners. That's what the cross is all about. In the cross, he shakes hands with sinners. He embraces sinners. He saves sinners, not good people, sinners from our sins. The glories of the cross. The glories of the cross. God is holy, but the last of the law's Threatening thunderclap has cracked over your Savior's head, and God says, Be at peace. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, The mountain shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Not one drip of wrath remains in the Father's heart toward you, because every, every drop of his wrath was poured out on his Son. On Calvary. But then we also see our Lord buried. Tacitus, the historian, said people sentenced to death forfeited their property and were forbidden burial. That's why it was bold for Joseph to come to Pilate and to ask for the body of Jesus. So an hour or two left before the Sabbath would begin, and Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, Matthew tells us he was a disciple of Jesus, made this daring request, lovingly took his body, it was prepared, placed in the rock tomb. And verse 47 explains to us how the women knew where Jesus' body had been laid. They saw it. They were there. And almost every Lord's Day, using the words of the Apostles' Creed, we confess, was crucified, dead, and was buried. It occurred. It's history. It occurred at a certain time, in a certain place. And the tomb was sealed. And it all seemed so irrevocable. Jesus was really crucified. He really died He really was buried in a garden tomb that was sealed. And as you think of the graves of some Christians that we love, or soon the grave for ourselves if Jesus does not come first, don't you think it's important to know Jesus has been there? He's gone through the grave. He's gone through the grave triumphantly. The grave points to the fall. It is a part of the humiliation that has resulted because of our sins. And if I may again reference Schilder, the grave is a concealment. It is a public confession of the repulsiveness of what once in the creation of God was an adornment to us. And since the mediator had been appointed to suffer humiliation publicly, the grave must necessarily be a part of this complex of shame and disgrace. It is a public demonstration of the fact that the Son of Man is dead. Really dead. Jesus was placed in the tomb three days. A dramatic pause. Breathless silence as we await Easter. Easter.